You know, every time I hear that song and just think about God's not just passionate love, but reckless love that he would just run through walls for you and I, to me it's so powerful that the God of the universe who holds my atoms together, the God who spins planets on his fingers, pursued you and I. In fact, that's what the whole book of Jonah is about. It's about a God who relentlessly goes after the rebel and the religious person lost in their rebellion or in their self-righteousness. In fact, one of the greatest things that can take you away from that sense of gratitude for what God is and what he's done is a sense of entitlement that God owes you. That's what we're going to look at today in, in chapter 4 of Jonah. Do you ever feel like God owes you? See, there's a big difference between being a Christian and being a religious person that we're going to see here in Jonah chapter 4. What do I mean? Well, think of it this way. If you're a Christian, under the surface, there's always a sense of wonder. Like, wow, God died for me. Me, a Christian, who would have thought it? I'm on the receiving end of God's grace and mercy. I'm just so incredibly grateful. In contrast to a religious person, would say, I said a prayer many years ago. Yeah, I'm a Christian. In fact, I've pretty much always been a Christian. And I show up to church because God owes me. He owes me good circumstances. He owes me good um, situations because of what a good person I am. There's some basic sense underneath the surface that God's kind of lucky to have me. Now, none of that's said out loud, but it's a difference between walking around with a sense of wonder, wow, the God of the universe loved me and died for me, died on the cross for me, and a sense that I show up to God for my vending machine, pull it out, God, I put the quarter in, I did my good deeds, I, I live morally, and God, you owe me. I'm entitled to good deeds. And if God doesn't give you good deeds, good circumstances, you start to get angry. In fact, what's even worse than God not giving me good circumstances is God giving those bad people good circumstances. Don't give them mercy, don't give them grace. That's what I deserve. So today this challenge will be, do you really know the heart of God? And is under the surface a sense of grace and wonder, or is there some sense of anger toward God that he's not giving you and others what they deserve? In fact, one of our passions as a church is creating environments for people who don't know God to come to find his grace. And years ago, uh, good friends of mine uh, who run a small group here at our church, they had invited their friend to start attending Horizon. And over weeks and months, he'd gone from being an atheist agnostic to finally sitting in small group with friends, asking questions, feeling comfortable to doubt and to drill into some issues he was worried about and wondering about. His friends in the small group had just really helped guide him along to the grace and love of God. And so one day he decided to become a Christian. And they were ecstatic, and they were cheering him on, and they were just celebrating him. Well, fast forward six to nine months, and things in his life got very, very challenging. Some business things didn't go right, some work things didn't go right, and all of a sudden he is angry at God, just furious. And so his friends are trying to comfort him and say, hey, you know, sometimes God's going to persevere with you. God doesn't guarantee everything's always going to go well. And he just got more and more angry and said, that's it, I'm giving up on God. And my friend's hearts were broken that somebody they thought had come to Christ could be so angry at God that 
when God didn't do what he wanted, he gave up on the whole thing. It's very similar to what happens today in the book of Jonah. In fact, what we're going to find out is that there's a question that God's going to ask Jonah that maybe you and I should wrestle with. Have you ever been angry that God is slow to get angry? Have you ever been angry that God is slow to get angry? In other words, those people deserve a lightning bolt. Those people deserve bad circumstances. And I'm mad, God, that you didn't give that to them. Why are you so slow to anger? Why are you so merciful toward them? I should be getting good stuff, and I don't like the fact you're giving them good stuff. That's really where my friend was. He wasn't just mad that God wasn't giving him the good circumstances. He was angry that other people who didn't deserve it were getting circumstances that he really deserved. Have you ever been angry that God is slow to get angry? You've often heard it said, you know, when you make your bed, you have to sleep in it. Well, today we're going to look at how to get out of certain beds, certain beds that we make for ourselves, that Jonah made for himself, that God wants us to be free from. We'll get those three beds together in hopes that we can align our heart to the heart of God. Let's look at the first one together. So the first bed we're going to look at is the bed of anger. What does it look like for you and I to get out of the bed of anger? Because that's where we're going to find Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. Now remember, he has disobeyed God. He has been in the belly of a whale. Then he spit up and he's come out and given this sermon, basically 40 days and God's going to get you because you deserve it. To now chapter 4, how will Jonah respond when he sees the people he just preached to respond to God's mercy and respond to God's grace. Well, he's not too thrilled, as you're about to see. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. This guy just gave a sermon, and the entire city responded to God. And he responds, it displeased him. In fact, he is angry, angry at his successful sermon. Why is that? Well, let's read on. So he prayed to the Lord and he said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my country? This explains my whole motivation, God. Therefore, I fled previously because I knew this would happen to Tarshish. For I know that Look what he says. This explains the whole book. I know that you are a gracious and merciful God. You're slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Now for many of us, when we think of the God of the Old Testament, we've been taught that God of the Old Testament is angry and mean and loves throwing lightning bolts at people. Jonah's like, no, 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 that's not what I know about the God of the Old Testament. He's loving and patient, and he loves to stop consequences from coming upon people. And that's why I didn't come here. That's why I didn't come to Nineveh. I didn't want them forgiven. I didn't want them to have God's mercy. Man, God, you'd given them exactly what they don't deserve. Mercy. And I'm angry that you're so slow to get angry at my enemies and your enemies. Now this phrase that he comes up with here isn't some random group of adjectives he's made up. Let me look at it again. This phrase, 
your gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness comes directly out of the book of Exodus. Right after God has delivered the people from Egyptian bondage, 10 plagues, crossed the Red Sea, Moses up on the mountain getting the 10 commandments and all of that and God's people, the Hebrews, have swapped God out for Baal. Yes, Baal shows up again in Jonah here. This phrase is in Exodus 34, 6. God describes himself exactly the way Jonah quoted it back to him when his people rebelled and he chose to forgive them. Exodus 34, 6. The people have made a golden calf. Baal got us out of Egypt. And the Lord God said, the Lord, the Lord God, it's merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. And that phrase long-suffering means to be long of nose. What a weird thing to say about God. God says, I am long of nose. Because when you get angry, your nose gets red. And God says, I've got a long nose. It takes a long time for my nose to get red. Because I'm so patient and kind. And I love forgiving people. And the reason Jonah is so angry is because he doesn't want to be as kind and as long-nosed and as gracious to his enemies, the Ninevites. So therefore, he sits in the bed of anger, in the bed of bitterness. That's my encouragement to you. Are you sitting in the bed right now? A bed of anger because God gave too much rope to those rebels because God forgave a certain category that you don't think should be as forgivable, because you don't do certain categories of wrongdoing and those people who do those categories are somehow worse than you or at least you're better than them. See, it's that self-righteousness that sits us in the bed of anger. God, I'm angry that you didn't bring someone to Christ who does deserve it. I'm angry that I can't get pregnant. I'm angry that that you're not sending lightning bolts to those people who did that to me. And you've heard it said, right? If you've made your bed, you have to sleep in it. But you don't. In fact, don't sleep in that bed. Get out of that bed. Get out of the bed of bitterness. Get out of the bed of, of self-righteousness. Find the mercy and grace of God. Let God grow your heart by getting out of the bed of anger. Now let's look at our second bed we can get out of as we look at Jonah again. Now look what it says here in Jonah. Right after he's angry that, that God would be so merciful toward his enemies, what does he say? He says, therefore now, O Lord, take my life. Take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. And the implication is I'd rather be dead than to live in a world with forgiven Ninevites. Poor me that I have to live in a world where my enemies are forgiven. I'd rather be dead. This is one of many characters in the Bible that actually contemplates suicide. He'll he'll do it twice in this chapter. But his suicidal thoughts are driven by he really believes that the world should run one way And it's actually running 
a different way. And in his anger, and in his self-pity, and in his helplessness, God shows up. And again, we see the heart of God, who is equally as compassionate toward the rebel Ninevites and and the rebel uh, mariners as he is toward the rebel Jonah. Look what happens. He compassionately comes to Jonah and says these words. Hey, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? What's really going on in your heart? Is it right for you to be angry? To feel self-pity that I'd be willing to forgive people I've made, that I've created, that I love? Is it right for you to be angry that because you've created a certain category that they've crossed over that you don't think you've crossed over? Do you realize I'm extending them the same mercy I'm extending you? Is it right for you to be angry? So think about self-pity, for example. Let me give you three aspects of self-pity that kind of might, might push or convict or, or prod you when you get angry at God for something he's doing. The first one, as we see here, is it right for you to be angry? Is Self-pity is really an emphasis on me. The whole rest of the world may be suffering bad circumstances, but I'm talking about me. I shouldn't have to put up with this. I shouldn't have to deal with this. Secondly, self-pity is about them. It's envy, really. Poor me that I don't have circumstances like them. God's letting good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people and I'm focused on them, what they have, what they're getting. Poor me, I deserve some of that. Thirdly, self-pity is a really belief like Jonah has here that we know better than God. God, I know better than you what should happen and Ninevites should get lightning bolts Hebrews like me should get like, uh, you know, bounty from heaven. It's really blasphemy. We put ourselves in the place of God and we really in our heart believe that we know better how to run the universe than God. And that causes anxiety. It causes hopelessness because we're living for our ability to control the world. And when things don't go the way we want, we lose hope. And we need God, we need his promises. We need to be a reminder that he's in charge and we're not, that he can disperse grace and mercy to anyone he chooses and I'm lucky to be a receiver of it. In fact, I was talking to my friend Kevin. Kevin's been uh, really revitalized in his faith over the last year. And he's been reading specifically about the prediction God makes about the end of time. And how God is in control. The very things he predicted 2,000 years ago are happening right before our eyes. So when things feel chaotic and things feel out of control, when you're watching the news, you're getting all anxious and fearful. He's just been focusing on God's promises. And it has so energized him that he decided to start a neighborhood Bible study. So several people in the neighborhood, many of which have never been in a Bible study before, never opened or even read the Bible before, get together for dinner once a week. Then they read the Bible, they reflect on God's promises, and discover the God of the Old and the New Testament is in charge, he is merciful, he is loving, and he knows what he's doing. Because at the end of those dinners, so many of his neighbors, who've literally never cracked the Bible before, have said to him, you know, I was so anxious watching the news, what's been going on this week or this month. 
And I just get so fearful and so anxious and so angry at the state of the world and feel so bad that we have to kind of put up with it. And then I come to this Bible study and I'm just reminded that God predicted this stuff in advance. God is in charge and I can trust him whatever the future holds. Now don't you want that? Don't you want to know that the same God who was operating in Jonah's life, who knew the Ninevites would repent and knew Jonah would rebel, but still worked in the midst of it all, is with you. And rather than falling into the pit of self-pity or falling into the bed of self-righteousness or falling into the bed of anger, what if we fell into the arms of our Heavenly Father? That's where he wants us to be. So get out of the bed of self-pity. Now what's the third bed that we want to get out of. But our third bed is the bed of selfishness. Because ultimately, behind all these things, Jonah is selfish. And God's going to call him to a series of very compassionate questions to get out of the bed of selfishness. Now, what do I mean? Well, look what happens here. A quick telling of the story before I read it. Jonah goes outside of the city of Nineveh. He finds a little hill and he sits there. And he waits for God to really give him what he wants. He's pouting out there. I'd rather be dead than to put up with this. You know what he's hoping? He's actually hoping that God is going to see how mad he is and how ticked off he is, how sad he is. I'm going to kill myself if, if you don't judge the Ninevites. He's literally waiting outside the city for God to change his mind and send down fire like Sodom and Gomorrah upon the city of Nineveh. But instead, how does God treat this rebellious, self-righteous prophet? With grace and mercy and kindness. What God does is God sends a shade tree. Grows up over him because the heat, there's this blasting heat out there. And Jonah's like, you know, getting heat exhaustion. So God provides him shade. This vine grows up with big leaves that provides him with some shade. Oh, Jonah's so thankful. Oh, it's really what I needed. I really like to be in the shade when I watch God bring thunderbolts down on my enemies. And then God sends a little bitty worm. Yes, deep under the surface is a little worm that comes and begins to gnaw its way in the roots of that vine tree. And that shade vine slowly withers away and now Jonah is exposed to the heat again and he's angry and he's frustrated. God why do I have to put up with this? And that's the summary of chapter 4. Let's look at it together. So Jonah went out of the city and he sat on the east side of the city and there he made himself a shelter and he sat in it in the shade, sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city, see that God would finally judge them. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. It's really hot out there. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. First of all, you need to notice that when you're very grateful for something, it's the opposite of being selfish. The opposite of being selfish is to be thankful. And what is he thankful about? 
You see the irony of this book again? He's so thankful that God gave him mercy or shade to protect him from the consequences of the sun and heat. And yet he's not grateful that God's willing to do the same for the Ninevites. See the constant irony in this book? God is again giving mercy to Jonah the same way he wants to give mercy to the Ninevites. Now, we've learned a lot about this city. This is a gigantic city. Three days journey to wander through all the neighborhoods. And God loves these rebellious. God loves these, these leaders that are probably evil. And a bunch of people in town kind of doing their own thing. And God loves each and every one of them. He knows them by name. In fact, we're going to discover that God even knows their pets, their livestock. The God of the Old Testament cares deeply about their animals and about each and every one of them. And now he's going to try and dialogue with Jonah to get Jonah's heart aligned with his heart rather than being so soaked in his own selfishness. Now, how did that plant grow up? Like, just like Jonah and the, the whale's kind of hard to believe. It's like, come on, you're telling me God supernaturally made a, a plant grow? Well, yeah. Well, first of all, he's God. So if he can cross the Red Sea and raise people from the dead, I don't think growing a plant quickly is too hard. But in the Middle East is a particular type of plant with gigantic leaves. It's pronounced different ways, but kirkayan, it's otherwise known as the, the castor bean plant. It's a little bit of difference of opinion on whether it's this one or another one, but it's probably in the ballpark based on the Hebrew. And this is a fast-growing plant, vine, with big, big leaves. So this is probably the type of leaves or shade that God brought to Jonah to bring him relief. While he's sitting there, enjoying and so thankful for the plant, what happens next? Well, as morning dawned the next day, God prepared. He prepared a plant. Now he prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that that plant withered. Oh. And it happened that when the sun arose, big hot sun, and Jonah's still out there waiting for a lightning storm to come and take care of those Ninevites, that God, here's the word again, prepared. He prepared the plant. He prepared the worm. Now he prepared a vehement east wind. He's going to send a deep, strong, hot wind against Jonah. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Oh, wow, is it hot. Then, second time, Jonah wished death for himself. He gets suicidal. <sighs> I shouldn't have to put up with Ninevites who are forgiven. I shouldn't have to live with these bad circumstances of a hot day out on a hot plane, even though I sat here in this position. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. Second time, repeats the exact same thing. He's still in the bed of selfishness. I shouldn't have to put up with this heat. I shouldn't have to put up with plants that die and worms that eat them. Poor me. At no time does he ever think that about the Ninevites, poor Ninevites who deeply need God's love and God's grace. Now, here's something to note here. I reminded you a couple weeks ago that the entire book of Jonah is a giant chiasm. Now, chiasm is just a name for Hebrew poetry. In fact, several of you have emailed me and said, Chad, where do you find this stuff? It's real easy. Literally, just Google 
chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M, in whatever book of the Bible you're in. And there's almost like the first three links in Google will show you all kinds of ways in which chiasms are embedded in every book of the Bible. The book of Daniel's a chiasm, the Song of Solomon's a chiasm, almost all the, the Psalms have chiasms in there. And if you look at like Jonah chapter 4, this will pop right up. But here's the rhyming of ideas that occurs all through Jonah, but especially in chapter 4. In chapter 4, 1 to 2, Jonah complains. He ran because God would show mercy to his enemies. Jump down to chapter 4, verse 10, 11. God explains why he showed mercy. So Jonah complains, I don't want you to show mercy. God explains why he showed mercy. We'll get to that in a moment. The next rhyme is chapter three and four, chapter four, verse three and four. Jonah asked to die, and God asked him a question, which rhymes with verse eight and nine. Jonah wants to die, same words, and God asks him a question. God keeps gently asking questions to soften his heart and to bring him around. That all points to the main point in the middle, which is God provides. God provides in the middle of rebellious, self-centered people. He provides a plant to an undeserving prophet, and then he provides a worm to an undeserving plant. So this chiasm is to point us that when we are selfish and thinking about ourselves, God is the opposite. God just continues to go out of his way to be gracious and kind and even to woo us back to himself with simple, compassionate questions. So what's our key takeaway? What's the real question that God has for you and God has for me? Well, the main point of the whole book comes down to this question that God has in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And the question is this. Are you and I living a pitiful life? Are we living a pitiful life focused on ourselves? Or are we living a pitiful life? We're a life so full of pity, so full of compassion, so full of love for other people. It just gets us up every day saying, I want to be as compassionate to others, as loving to others, as long-nosed to others, as, as patient to others, as wow, my God has been to me. So remember, Jonah has just said a second time, I want to die. Then I have to put up with this. And look what God says in verse 10 of chapter 4. Then God said, is it right? Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah's response, it is right for me to be angry even to death, God. Yes, I'm justified. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. I am totally justified here, God. You're in the wrong and I'm not. And then God launches into this speech. This speech is 39 words in Hebrew. And here's another piece of, of little poetry here we can't see in English. Jonah's speech initially was 39 words in Hebrew. Then they get into this kind of tiff-taff, back and forth, plant thing. And God's speech that I'm about to read is 39 words in Hebrew. So very clearly the writer's trying to show us that the antidote to anger and self-pity and self-righteousness is whatever God's about to say here about living a pitiful life. Here's what he says in verse 10, 11. But the Lord said, 
you have had pity or compassion on the plant for which you have not labored. You didn't make that thing. You didn't make it grow. It came up in the night and it perished in a night. Should I not pity, have compassion toward Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 people and they can't even discern the right hand from the left and they've got a lot of livestock. Now the word pity there is used twice and the word pity is cool. It's cool to have pity. God says, should I not have pity? I care about these people. I even care about their livestock. See, that's the thing about God. God is cool. He's full of pity. He's full of compassion. He loves his people, even the rebellious ones. And he says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to do the same. I want you to spare, and that's what the word cool means, to spare the consequences to someone. Isn't that what you do when you forgive somebody? You say, I'm not going to give you what you deserve because I know what you deserve because I'm going to keep a track of who's naughty and who's nice. But I'm going to spare, kaul you, by living a life of pity. I'm living a pitiful life, so filled with the pity of God, I can't help but be pitiful, compassionate toward other people. Now maybe as we've been going through this series on Jonah, you thought, I thought I knew this book. And each, each week you've been like, man, that was convicting. Or wow, that was encouraging. Or where did you get that? Can I go deeper on that subject? We've had so many of you share how you've been so encouraged by this series and wanting to dig deeper into your own heart and deep, deep, dig deeper into the text that we've created a brand new tool that we're going to be launching for everyone to enjoy starting next week as we dig into the Psalms, specifically the Ascent Psalms, the Psalms of Easter. I'd like Drew to explain a little bit about how this is going to work and how this can be a tool you can use for your own personal growth and maybe even as a group or maybe as a family. Listen as Drew, Drew explains the new thing we're calling the Pathway, a tool for you to go deeper. 